All of us know how important it is to put good things in our bodies to help us stay strong. That desire was the inspiration for the Bigelow Benefits line, everyday teas that fuel your body with good-for-you ingredients like lavender, lemon, chamomile, echinacea, and turmeric. Make better sleep, focus, and stress relief part of your routines. Support your well-being with Bigelow Benefits today. Available at your local grocer on Amazon or at BigelowTea.com. Bigelow Tea, grab a mug and tea proudly. Hi, I'm Andrea Donsky, founder of NaturallySavvy.com and co-host of our Naturally Savvy podcast. And I am Lisa Davis, MPH health educator, co-host of Naturally Savvy and author of the book, Cleaning Eating Dirty Sex Memoir Cookbook Healthy Lifestyle Guide. At Naturally Savvy, we are here to help you make healthier lifestyle choices. So we are so honored that you are tuning in to listen to our podcast on a weekly basis. And we are here to engage you, have fun, and help you live your healthiest lifestyle. Now, on to the show. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Naturally Savvy Radio. My co-host Andrea is away today. If you follow me on social media, you will see the majority of my posts are pictures of my dogs. Uh, there's my Pity Blue, aka Mr. Baby. He's a cuddle bug, constantly smushing you. It's the best. And then I've got my lab, Benji. I call him Benjerton. He needs to be wherever I am. If I leave the room, he'll follow me where Blue won't. But then if Blue's with me, he's got to be like smashing me. And I was trying to take notes for my guest today, who's amazing, Carol Novello. She did this fantastic book, Mutual Rescue, How Adopting a Homeless Animal Can Save You Too. I'm a dog fanatic, and this book is phenomenal. You will cry. You will laugh. You will just say, thank God for pets, because I don't know how we could get through uh, our humanness without them. Carol, welcome to Naturally Savvy. Thank you so much, Lisa. It is a thrill to be here. Well, I have to bring you in or I'll just keep talking about Mr. Baby. I Mr. Baby over there. <laughs> All right. So in the introduction, you tell us about Nick the Stray Cat. You talk about how you met Nick when you were five. And you write, Nick had been the saving grace of our relationship. Now you were talking about your relationship with your mom. And I thought, wow, that's so I love when people are so candid. Tell us a little bit about Nick and about your mom and what was going on there. Yeah, well, you know, my mom did her best, and uh, but as a little girl growing up, I just didn't feel uh, a closeness to her, real affection. We didn't seem to have a lot in common, and and we struggled to connect. But the way that we connected was through animals. That was the bridge. And the reason why that memory is so vivid, and I talk about it in the introduction to the book, is because that is the first time I just genuinely like really wanted something and really was so excited about something. And my mom said, yes. So we went to go get a Christmas tree and we were at a Christmas tree farm and someone had dumped um, this stray yellow cat. And I just begged my mom and said, please, can we take him home? And she said, yes. And I was like, just stunned that she had said, yes. I mean, it was so thrilling. And, um, and then it just gave us something to connect over. And, um, you know, to this day, my mom is 97. And um, the way we still connect is we talk about animals, that that is, that is where we find common ground. And so I'm grateful that there is something that has created a bridge, um, and a way for me to actually also see a softer, sweeter side to my mother, than quite honestly, I probably wouldn't see otherwise. Yeah, you know, it, it always breaks my heart that my mom had this fear of dogs. And 
because she had chronic illnesses. And I know that if she had a dog or a cat on her bed to curl up with and or just be there with her, I think it would have helped immensely, which we'll go into yeah. in the book and the science behind that. And I'll have dreams sometimes where, because she died uh, when she was 57 from ovarian cancer. So it's been 25 years. And so I've had, I, I never got a dog until I was 33. Bailey was a pit mix. He was my first. And then we got, I was married, uh, my husband, Ken and I, we got ba Bailey and then we got Bobo, who was a shepherd a setter mix. Beautiful. Oh my God. And they wow. passed away. Now we have Blue, who's a blue nose pit bull. And we have Benji, Benji, who's a lab. But I'll have dreams where my mom is like cuddling with Blue or cuddling oh. with Benji. And it's so beautiful. I'm like, see, mom, isn't this great? So it's like, ah, but I'm glad that I get I get the joy of them. And my daughter was born into a family with dogs. That's something I always wished I was. And I see the joy that that she gets from them. So that's really nice. I want to talk about, too, in the introduction, you talk about people asking you why you had this big, high-powered job and why you got into helping animals. And I love that you say, quote, by helping animals, I'm helping people, helping them heal their own pain, find greater purpose, and discover more sources of joy. That is for sure. It is. It really is. Yeah, it was interesting. So I was a senior executive at Intuit in Silicon Valley for many years. Awesome company, love the company, love the work. Um, but I also just felt a calling for something more and decided to take a little bit of time off, which I did. And then through serendipity, I had the opportunity to become president of Humane Society Silicon Valley. And what was so interesting about it was people, you know, they, they sort of got, okay, you know, here you, you have this great career, you have an MBA from Harvard. Maybe I kind of get why you went into nonprofit, but now you went into nonprofit and it's about animals, like, you know, like didn't quite get it. And, and so it was this, this question I would sometimes get from folks, like, why are you helping animals when you could be helping people? And I just thought that was really curious because I know the role that animals have played in my life. And I was seeing firsthand just how animals were transforming the lives of people that were adopting animals from our shelter. And I said, you know what, we've, we've got to change the conversation. It isn't just, it isn't animals or people, it's, it's animals and people. Yeah, you are so right. I mean, the, the dogs have enriched my life tremendously. I mean, I had a hamster. That's all my mom would let us have. And that, the hamster was great. Rascal, he lived for three and a half years, which is very unusual. Yeah, I that think is unusual for a hamster. But at any rate, yeah, my dogs are just everything. I love, too, how you talk about attachment theory. And you, you write, what are some of the surprising things that happen when you become attached to a pet? Or you ask that question. So what are some of them? And you talk about that biochemistry of bonding. Yeah, there's two very interesting um, psychological concepts called a safe haven and a secure anchor. And a safe, and they're basically what they sound like. It, you know, a safe haven is a place where you you derive comfort, and you uh, you're you're able to just feel kind of cared for. And a secure anchor is this base that gives you the ability to go out into the world so that you can accomplish your goals and feel secure in your ability to do that. And it's a psychological construct. And if we're fortunate to be raised in a family that provides us with that psychological construct, we internalize it and that helps us function and be present in the world. But you know, most of us didn't grow up in perfect families. And so we have, you know, varying degrees of how we feel internally in terms of whether or not we have a sense of a safe haven or a secure anchor within ourselves. So if you don't have that and it hasn't been modeled for you, 
where are you going to get it? And you have to have an experience of, of being loved that provides you with, oh, that's what it feels like. And then when you start to have that feeling, you absorb it into your body and you start to internalize it. And then you can actually produce that for yourself. And so animals for me are a portal to be able to help you experience the kinds of things that you might have missed. And, you know, and even, a, even in a wonderful family, I mean, it's not like animals are just for people that didn't have perfect childhoods. They're just as, you know, wonderful about helping you experience joy and the love of life and like, just like, oh, wow, a squirrel, isn't that the coolest thing ever? <laughs> and my daughter is. <laughs> we all need that. I mean, especially now when, uh, you know, it's, it's, so there's so much that they can awaken in us and help us experience that makes us become better humans. Yeah, that is so true. Talk to us about Chester, the cat, and your dad. I loved reading about that. <laughs> I, I love this story because my father was a wonderful man. I had a very close relationship with my father and uh, just my favorite man on the planet. Uh, he passed away when I was uh, early in college. But growing up, the, the thing that was so interesting about it was he actually didn't really care for animals. So even though I loved my dad so much, my love of animals came from my mother. That's the irony. But he didn't, he didn't hate cats because he wasn't that kind of a person. But at best, he tolerated them. And I can just remember growing up because I loved cats so much. I'd be like hanging out in the kitchen and, you know, like kissing the cats. And I'd be, you know, sitting there and my dad would be like, don't kiss the cats. Cats have germs. Like that was his like whole thing. And then we ended up, this cat Chester came into our lives and uh, just through my sister and a friend that needed to, couldn't have a cat and the landlord found out. So we ended up with Chester because my mom said yes. And, uh, and Chester came into the house. Here's this man who is otherwise very loving and open, but he's got a blind spot. He's got a bias. He's got a prejudice, to be honest, about cats and what they are. And, and it's coming from his mind. It's not coming from his heart and it's not coming from a place of really seeing or, or looking at an animal and connecting with that animal. So Chester came into our house and what was fascinating was he just decided that my dad was his guy. And, uh, and despite the fact that my dad would ignore him or shoo him away, he didn't give up on my dad. And every Friday night, my dad would go up into his den. This is in the 70s. So he's sitting in this burnt orange leather chair <laughs> watching Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser. And no one, no one, like no one in the family, like first of all, we were annoyed that my dad is hogging the TV on a Friday night watching Louis Rukeyser. And, um, but, my, uh, but my dad faithfully went up every Friday night. And so what was so fascinating was Chester figured that out. And so he would follow my dad upstairs and he started hopping up and sitting in my dad's lap and watching Lou Roo and Wall Street Week with my dad. And, uh, and one day I walked by and I like walked by the den and I stuck my head in and I did this double take and I was like, look who's kissing the cat. <laughs> what was so Great. fascinating to me is that Chester, Chester didn't change my dad's mind through thoughts. He changed my dad's mind through connecting with my father's heart. And that's what's so amazing. And, 
you know, and the fact that he didn't, you know, he didn't say, oh, my gosh, my dad, you know, this man's acting like a jerk. I'm not going to waste my time. It was like Chester knew he was fabulous. And he's like, and I know that you're, you know, to my dad, I was kind of like, I know you're fabulous, even though you're not acting that way. You know, and he just like, he's like, he just, Chester just showed up as love. And in the act of doing that, totally transformed my father. It was really quite miraculous. And, you know, it's kind of a lesson for us all in terms of um, helping us connect with uh, other beings that we might otherwise label. It, it is true. It's all about making that connection, right? It and really it, that it makes a huge, huge difference. So there was so many hard stories to read. And I think one of the hardest was Kylie and Liza, yeah. the cat. Kylie, uh, just a beautiful, beautiful young woman uh, diagnosed with cancer. And, um, you know, ultimately she passed. Um, and the story is really about Liza, the, the kitten, and not only how she helped Kylie pass, but then what she did to help the family and specifically Kylie's mother, Robin. And so Kylie had really, really wanted a, uh, a kitten and the family kept putting it off and putting it off. And, and then, you know, she just, they got the final diagnosis that she wasn't going to make it. And so her family wanted her to have the opportunity of, of having this kitten. And so a wonderful rescue organization called Angels Among Us brought a, a kitten over to the, the family and, and the kitten just instinctually knew what Kylie needed. And she just stayed with Kylie and cuddled with her and was just there with her. And when they had to give meds and stuff to Kylie, they would take the cat off the bed and the cat would go play. And then immediately, as soon as she could get back on the bed, she would get back on the bed with Kylie. And, um, and she, before she passed, you know, she looked at her parents, she asked her dad to find a cure for childhood cancer. And she asked her mom to take care of um, her kitten, Liza. And, uh, you know, Robin goes on to just share how incredibly healing it was to have Liza after Kylie passed. It was an opportunity for her to stay connected to Kylie by caring for something that Kylie um, valued so deeply. But you know, it, there, there's this lovely line that, that Robin says. She said, you know, Kylie whispered to me to take care of Liza, but I also think she whispered to Liza to take care of me. Oh, my goodness. You know, losing pets is so hard. You write about your cat, Wilbur. Wilbur's death forced me to see a deeper truth. The pain of loss is as integral to the process of bonding and attachment as love itself. And then in another part of the book, you write, through my grief over losing Wilbur, that forced you to face the buried sorrow about your father's death. Yeah, I think that one of the, I mean, there's no question, you know, when you lose someone you you love and you're close to, whether it's an animal or a person, you just, you feel like your heart's being ripped out of your chest. I, I don't know another way to really describe it. And we have to process that grief. And I think you know, we think of those things as like love is one thing and grief is over here. But in fact, they're, they're very intertwined. You can't have one without the other. And, um, 
you know, there's a lovely quote actually from um, another story in the book um, that, you know, grief is just love with nowhere to go. And I think that, um, you know, we can't bury our grief. We have to be able to experience it and, and acknowledge that we're, you know, we're missing that love, that there's a void there. But we can still connect with that feeling of love that that person or that animal brought to us and remember that experience. And, and again, kind of help integrate that sense of, of caring and connection that we felt with them. It doesn't go away. Um, but if, if we don't process it, if we just push it down and, and we don't deal with it, that's when it really creates problems because essentially we're harboring it in our body. We haven't processed it. It, it needs to be um, metabolized, really. And what happened when, uh, when Wilbur died, I was just devastated. I mean, honestly, I, I felt like I couldn't form sentences for several months after he passed. But what I realized is that my grief from losing him was touching upon the grief of having lost my father. And I had never really processed that. Instead, I was like, I'm going to go out and accomplish all these great things and make my father super proud of me. And that's how I'm going to deal with my grief. And accomplishment is not love. <laughs> <laughs> True. And, and we, we really need to kind of understand that and process that and and it was, and, and when we're holding on to grief, we're preventing ourselves from being able to love again. And, you know, I hear a lot of people that will say, oh, you know, I can't, po I, it was so devastating to, to lose an animal. I can't possibly go through that again. And, you know, on one level, I really understand that because, you know, it, to a certain extent, I was doing that in the context of not allowing myself to love again after losing my father and, and how I felt after Wilbur died. But what I realized is, there's this place inside of ourselves that we've loved that animal, we've loved that person. And we honor that, we respect that, we can still connect into that. And then we, our heart grows bigger by choosing to love again. It's, you know, like I think people think, oh, I'm, I'm going to betray or I'm, I'm right. you know, I'm, I'm doing like I'm dishonoring the memory of the person that I loved. And it's like, no, guess what? It's like the part of you that loved them, like no one else gets that. You just grow your heart bigger to embrace more love. And like, that's amazing to to really when you think about it. Oh, completely. So I meant to mention this at the beginning. I love the way you break up the book. Section one is heart. Section two is body. Section three is mind. Section four is connection. And they're all fabulous. I want to talk about grief a little bit. Our society is so horrible at handling grief, whether it's people and even worse when it's animals. But there was something that I just really struck me. It was said by Carol uh, Bussolari, PhD. Oh, Corey. Yeah, Corey Bussolari. Yes, thank you. Uh, animals never say the wrong thing. So a month after my mom passed, this guy that I kind of knew from the gym, but not really well, it's like, hey, Lisa, how's it going? I'm like, I'm having a really hard time. He goes, why? I'm like, well, I told you, like, my mom died like a month ago. He's like, oh, you should be over that by now. I wanted to punch him in the face and I'm not a violent person. Like, what is that? Number one, you don't get over it. You get used to it. It's been 25 years just recently and I'm still not over it. I'm just kind of, you live your life. Yeah. I hear and then you. when yeah, a pet exactly. dies, people are even worse. 
which is surprising. Some people, I think it depends if you're an animal person. I think you get it. But I think overall, our society is just horrible dealing with griefs. Well, you know, that's one of the things that Robin Myers, when she was talking about Kylie's death, is that, you know, one of the things that Liza did for her was provide this sense of just letting her be with her sadness and her grief and not trying to fix it or change it. She just honored it. And she just felt like I can be with this animal and this animal will accept me as I am in this state that I am experiencing and just, and just love me. And, and I don't have to say anything. And, and she's not saying anything to me, but her presence is helping me heal. And, you know, that's a lesson for all of us in terms of how we can, we can be with people in their grief. I wanted to talk about Eric and Petey because I read the book and I interviewed Eric. What a wonderful story. Yeah. So Eric and Petey was the very first mutual rescue film uh, that we made. So we made a series of, of short films um, and the success of those short films is what actually led to the opportunity to be able to write and publish the mutual rescue book. They're fantastic, by the way. I've watched them with my daughter. We've been crying all morning and, and happy. If you go to mutualrescue.org, you can uh, you can see those short films. The book itself is filled with tons of stories, um, some of which are films, but there's so many in the book that are not, plus the book also has all the science. Um, so Eric and Petey was the very first mutual rescue film that we made. And that came about because I uh, was talking with this, man who's just a creative genius, a creative producer. And I told him that about this quandary of, of people saying, why are you helping animals when you could be helping people? Uh, his name is David Whitman and he used to do the uh, tech awards in Silicon Valley, he used to produce those. And so he said, you know, I think we should make a series of short films that really bring this to life. And I had been telling Eric's story out in presentations that I was doing out in the community as an example of how helping animals helps people. So Eric um, was extremely overweight. I think he weighed about 340 pounds, uh, was really struggling, very isolated. And um, he had this experience where he was on an airplane and the flight was delayed because they didn't have a seatbelt extender that was big enough to fit him. And the man next to him looked at him and said, I'm gonna miss my connecting flight because you're too fat. And it just was you know, devastating. Horrible. And horrible. And um, so that really prompted Eric to go, what am I going to do here? And he ended up seeking out a naturopathic doctor. And the very first thing that she prescribed, in quotes, to him was to go to a shelter and adopt a dog. And so that's what he did. He came to Humane Society Silicon Valley and said, uh, I'd like an obese middle-aged dog so that we have something in common. And uh, he adopted Petey and together uh, they went on this journey and Eric walked Petey every day for at least 30 minutes, sometimes twice a day. And um, Eric lost, I think it was 140 pounds. Petey lost 25 pounds and uh, it really truly transformed his life. But I think the thing that's just as important as the, the body component of, you know, it got Eric physically active. It got him out of the house and walking the dog and, and exercising and all of those things. 
But Eric will talk about the fact that it was really the first time he truly experienced kind of unconditional love and acceptance. And I think that was just as important as the walking was uh, for Eric physically. And that, you know, ultimately he felt he became a nicer, kinder person um, because of the example that Petey was for him. And uh, it really was just a miraculous story. It's so, uh, so joyful um, and so deep and rich in, in its context in the way that it transformed Eric's life. So when we, we made that short film as an effort to invite people to submit their own stories of mutual rescue, uh, that's how we got Kylie and Liza's story. They responded to our, our, our call for stories when they saw Eric and Petey's story. But we launched that film on Valentine's Day in 2016. And it was, you know, doing okay. And then SF Gate posted it on their Facebook page. And that one post alone had 35 million views, 200,000 shares, and 50,000 comments. I've never seen anything like that in my life. And the film has since gone on to be viewed more than uh, 100 million times around the globe. So, uh, you know, it's just, it just speaks to the transformative power of love, quite honestly. And that love is something that um, can be experienced between species, which is really even more extraordinary. I read his book and I interviewed him and, and it was it was wonderful. So in the in section two in the body, I love this. The effects of wags on whiskers on physiology. You talk about the new RX for heart health is adopt a pet. I talk about that a lot. One of the things that that came up for me too was quote, animals turn strangers into friends. So I moved here 20 years ago to New England from California, never lived in cold weather, didn't know anybody. <laughs> didn't have a job. My husband had a job right away. So that's why we moved here. So he was gone. I was by myself. So we got Bailey, my pit mix. And I take Bailey on walks into the woods. And that's how I made friends. Yeah. Because New England is, is a little, let's just say, and um, New Englanders, no offense, but it's not the friendliest place. And I'm, I'm always like, hi, how you doing? What's going on? You want to go to dinner? You know? And uh, they're like, I just met you. Like, who the hell are you? You know, but with Bailey, it was like, oh, let's get our dogs together. Yeah. And that's how I made my core group of friends. So yeah. it, it is, it is pretty amazing. Well, what I always laugh is, is, you know, you actually get to know the dogs' names before you know the people's names. And then eventually you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, oh, by the way, you know, that's really uh, pretty special that they, they do. They create bridges. And I think one of the things that I really love especially about dogs is it is a way for you to connect with someone that has nothing to do with your skin color, your sexual orientation, your economic background, what you do for a living. It's like when you love animals, that is a way that you can connect with people that I think is just extraordinary. And you have an appreciation uh, for one another and just a way, again, I mean, it's not unlike it, it's not like, but in some ways it is. When I think about you know trying to find that connection with my mother, how do you, how do you how do you find an inroad with someone that it appears that you don't have a connection to or anything in common with? And animals can be that bridge, and that's really pretty amazing. Yeah, it really it's it's incredible. There was some pretty powerful stories in section two. You have uh, Sarah and Domino, and Sarah was a heroin addict. 
you have another woman recovering from addiction, Gemma and Prince. And, you know, I don't want to give too much away because people have got to read the book. But wow, I mean, those are some powerful, powerful stories. Yeah, there's a couple things that are that were really fascinating to me, especially in the context of learning about addiction and the role that animals can play in, in helping with that. Recovering from addiction, when I was reading the statistics, the, the statistics are not good. I mean, it, it is really hard to recover from addiction. Um, but one of the, the, the things that they're learning about it is that it is fundamentally um, a, an underlying cause of it is a lack of connection. Whether it's a connection within yourself, connection with life, connection with other people, but it is a lack of connection and ability to connect. And that is the role that animals play, is that they help you create a connection to another being. And then in that in turn, causes you to start to connect with yourself. And that is what happened with Sarah and Domino and Gemma and Prince. It was like they connected with the animal and then in doing that were reflected back the role they had to play in that animal's life, that they had value, they had purpose. Uh, there was a reason for them to, to be you know, in the world and provide value and an exchange of, of love. And I've seen this you know, come up in other instances. I had a woman, um, that I ended up getting connected to after the book was written and she was recovering from anorexia. And it had gotten so bad that her family had kicked her out of the house. They just, you know, it was kind of like tough love. Like we've tried to get you treatment, you won't do it. You, you know, you cannot do this anymore. And they kicked her out of the house. She's living in a motel and a stray cat showed up at her door. And she starts caring for the stray cat, feeding the stray cat, and in the act of doing that, she's like, I need to care for this animal by feeding it. That means I need to care for myself by feeding myself. And if I'm going to care for this animal, I have to feed my, like, so she, wow. like, that was, and I was like, I was blown away. Like, I don't know how many years of therapy, <laughs> you, you know, like, would that take to resolve that? Because you've got to have, you have to have the visceral experience in your body of knowing that feeling. And I don't know how you, I, I'm not sure how you get that in, in certain situations, except through an animal. Whew, it, it really is such an amazing book. And people have got to go watch the videos as well. So in section three, mind, you, you write the extraordinary trait that animals can inspire. Oh, there's so many things. I mean, one of the one of the things that I love is is grit and resilience. Yes, that was interesting. And there's a great story. There, there's a, it's in the book, and then there's also a short film. It's called Patrick and Grace. That was my favorite because I'm a pit bull fanatic. I mean, they're the sweetest. Oh my god, they are just pure love, balls of love, and it makes me insane. The ugh, the stigma. Anyway, go on. Well. You know, I think what's uh, what's unfortunate, it's about, you know, pit bulls are about labels, which is, you know, we shouldn't be looking at a at a breed, we should be looking at individuals. And that's true of humans. You know, it's like there's great humans and there's not so great humans. And we shouldn't be labeling categories gets you, you know, into trouble. But in any in any event, Patrick and Grace is a great story because Patrick was this young, super athletic. I mean, he was like training and I think he was doing an Ironman or CrossFit or something. And he was in a competition and he uh, ended up like one of his um, 
arteries ripped and and basically he ended up having a stroke at the age of I think like 34 or 35 and um, and had to go you know had to recover from that which was just nightmarish but two weeks before this had happened he and his girlfriend had adopted a pit bull named grace who had been abused and oh my god she just but he had this heart of gold and you know he and his girlfriend brought grace home and and what happened is he was recovering first of all you know grace was his constant companion even though his girlfriend was fabulous um she had to go to work and you know all those things and and grace was with him all the time but he looked at what she had been through. I mean, she had, you know, like burns on her face and her body, and it was clear she'd been mistreated. And he saw the resilience in her and how she came back and wasn't giving up and that the life was throw, you know, was flowing through her. And he took that as inspiration. And he's like, you know, she can do it, I can do it. You know, like, like oh my God, she's had it so much worse and so much harder than I have. And look at how she's coming back. And, and it was just a source of, of resilience and, and grit for him, that helped him get through his recovery. And I just think that they can be awesome role models. You know, a lot of times they, they don't carry the self-consciousness of a, you know, something like losing a limb. I mean, I would just always find it amazing, you know, we used to have a lot of three-legged dogs that, you know, would somehow end up at, in, at Humane Society Silicon Valley. And, and you'd never know they had three legs. I mean, they didn't think of themselves as disabled. They're like, you know, they figured out and they were like still so full of life and joy. And it was like, yeah, we all need to learn that. I love in that section, mind, you talk about mental illness. You talk about PTSD. And again, I don't want to give everything away. People have got to read about Josh and Scout. My daughter and I watched the film this morning, the short. Oh, my God. We we're both crying. I mean, wow. That was something so amazing. The other thing, too, is I, I love how they also talk about in this chapter about mindfulness. I'm really bad at meditating. My husband's been doing it for 20 years, and, and he's always like, "Honey, you need to meditate because I'm pretty high strung. I'm like, I know, I know. And when I read today that you can uh, do a meditation, a petting meditation, so you're petting, it's the same thing as, as if you're using your breath. So you're petting your dog, and then I'm thinking about, oh, it's flipping COVID, or, oh, I'm worried about my dad who just, he's 81, he just went and got a job. I'm like, oh, my God, okay, back to, bring your breath. It's almost like bring your breath back, bring your thoughts back to the petting, or just be yeah. in the moment. Yeah. I thought that's incredible. So I, that was something I hadn't thought of. I mean, I do often stare into Blue's eyes and Benji's eyes because it raises our oxytocin and mm -hmm. their oxytocin. Yeah. Um, I, there's just so much. I also love that you talk about helping kids with autism. My daughter has something called NVLD, which is similar. Mm. And I know our animals have helped her when she's feeling overwhelmed and she'll just squeeze Blue. And he is so tolerable. I mean, he, he loves to, I don't know if it's a pit thing. I, I, I see a lot. I watch a lot of stuff up on Instagram, pit bulls of Instagram were obsessed. And like so often you see the pit and their face is just smushed into the person. Like it's just, they love to be smushed. So she just gets that comfort. And I loved reading about Jade and Double Trouble, also known as Trubs. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you, my daughter's sleep was a nightmare until she was six. And I'm thinking I should have got a cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was pretty pretty amazing. Trubs basically would get up on, on, I mean, the first night they got Trubs would get up on Jade's chest and start kneading her chest and it would calm her down. It calmed her nervous system down. 
I, I, I mean, that's mind blowing. There really, there's, there's no words for how that's magical. That's what the word is. It is it magical. Really moved me to tears to see that, to, to be a mom, knowing that that struggle yeah. And to know that, thank goodness, and she got this relief. I also thought it was great talking about how pets encourage reading and cognitive ability. I mean, they're just unbelievably amazing. Yeah. yeah. They really are. Now, in Section 4 in Connection, oh, there's, again, so many heartbreaking stories. Tell us a little bit about Brian and Kim Rose and then their dog, Lana. Yeah. So this was just a heartbreaking story to read the uh, and I'll, I'll spoil it right now and just say they uh, they have gone on and, and now have a, a new son in their life named Noah. Oh, that's uh, wonderful. Which I, I love. I love Noah. The, the, Me too. The nod to Lana, the, the dog. But what happened is Kim and, um, and Brian got pregnant and um, unfortunately they lost their baby girl and it was extraordinarily painful. And... And what was very interesting and unique about this story was, you know, Kim as the mom was really acknowledged as having lost a child. So she actually, like, there are support groups for moms that have lost children. People were always like, oh, how's Kim? You know, everybody was focused on the mom. And there wasn't really a way for Brian to process his grief. It was almost like people didn't really kind of acknowledge that he might have grief at having lost a child or that it would be that hard for him. And there wasn't really any place for him to go to process that grief. And it just, this gets back to, you know, how do you metabolize it? What do you do with it? And it just started like folding in on him. And he just started shutting himself off. He pulled away from Kim. I mean, Kim's like, where is the man that I married? I mean, like she was worried about the state of their marriage, if it was going to recover. And, um, and then through just happenstance, she was kind of like, Hey, you know, maybe we should think about a dog and, you know, showed, showed him this adoption event and he kind of brushed it off. And, uh, the next morning he's like, come on, let's go, let's go. And she's like, go where? Like, what are you talking about? It's like the adoption event. And she's like, okay. And so, <laughs> you know, they go to this adoption event and, uh, and they met this, uh, German shepherd mix named Lana. And they brought Lana home. And and this was the quote I said earlier, you know, grief is just love with nowhere to go. And and Brian references that quote because basically he said, you know, Lana gave me a place to put my love. And it helped him reconnect into his loving self, giving him a person, also helped him recognize Lana's not replacing Ariel. Nothing will replace Ariel. I will always love my daughter but I have this capacity to give and to love and I'm going to take the love I feel for Ariel and I'm going to expand that so that I can grow my heart bigger and love this dog, get back to loving my wife. And then ultimately um, they got pregnant again and have welcomed their son Noah into their home. That is so beautiful. What, what a gift um, that animal was to that family. And in, and in return, they saved, they saved Lana and gave her a second chance and a loving home. So it truly is mutual. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, so many of us are struggling right now with being home all the time and with COVID and some of us have lost loved ones. And I've, I've heard that people are getting pets, but I'm also concerned that they're seeing it like, okay, we're going to get this pet. But then when life goes back to normal, they're not thinking about, oh, wait, 
I'm my husband and I work all day or we don't have the money to hire a dog walker if we're gone. Or we're, have you seen this? So people, uh, people are absolutely adopting and, and fostering during COVID animals, I think, have really been, again, a source of, of connection in a multitude of ways. Um, and, you know, what, what I am hoping is that um, people will have had the time to bond with these animals and therefore um, that bond is what is going to inspire and motivate them to adapt their lifestyle as things quote return to normal um you know there is some risk and undoubtedly i think there are animals that are going to come back into the shelters when COVID is over i hope that will be minimalized um quite honestly one of the things that i'm really worried about it's something that mutual rescue is actually um uh working on is um you know, with people losing their jobs and possible eviction that, you know, so the, the flip side of people adopting during COVID is that people that are losing their jobs uh, and losing their homes, that means those animals are at risk. So we're not hearing about that as much as we're hearing about, you know, oh, people are sheltering at home, so they're adopting animals and they're doing all that. And that's all great. But there's a downside that we're not, you know, seeing. And there's been an uptick in people needing help from pet pantries um, so Mutual Rescue is actually working on a project right now to, to help expand um, the availability of, of pet pantry programs. And, you know, that's going to be super important. So I think it's always, I mean, one of the, the things that I'm always cognizant of when I talk about this is that there's, you know, I've, I've seen how transformative it, it is to bring an adopted animal into your home. And at the same time, I don't want to gloss over the fact that it is a responsibility and it is a commitment and it's not to be undertaken lightly. And so, um, you know, it's not like, oh, you adopt an animal and all of a sudden like, oh, like life is so hunky dory. It's like it comes with responsibilities. You know, I mean, I talk about this in the book. It's like, you know, they puke on the floor at 4 a.m. and you walk in it on your way to get a towel. <laughs> And it's gross. Oh my gosh. I have to vacuum twice a day or the house is covered in Benji's fur. It's insane. And, and you have to, especially with dogs, it's important that you get the right match. Um, you know, some dogs are super high energy and you cannot leave them alone all day. I mean, you shouldn't be leaving a dog home alone, you know, all day without exercise or something coming in to, you know, take them out for a walk or, or other things like that. But you need to plan for that. You need to. And so I don't want to discourage people. Um, because I think they can be so transformative, but it is a responsibility and, uh, and not one to be undertaken lightly. And, um, and I, you know, I'm hopeful again that the bonding that has occurred during sheltering in place is going to be such that people really will really try to figure out what they need to do to make sure that they keep their families together uh, when we're able to go back to a more normal life. And, and that family includes animals. Definitely. Well, the payoff is huge. I mean, everything we've talked about, everything that's in the book, Mutual Rescue. You know, my daughter is interested in working in a career as animals. There's a program at a community college near us that's called Animal Care Specialist. And and what are some ways to get into whether you work at a shelter or a farm with horses? Well, I think more than anything is, you know, there's just always an opportunity to volunteer at a local shelter or rescue group. Um, there's opportunities uh, to foster so that you can have the experience of caring for an animal, but not necessarily making a lifetime commitment. I think what's interesting about, you know, my path, I mean, I'm not a veterinarian. I don't have any, you know, people would always say to me, like, I go to a cocktail party and they'd be like, 
so I'm having this issue with my dog. And they were like, <laughs> you know, they do tell me a thing. And I'm like, so here's the deal. I actually, I spend my time with people and money. And then I have all these other people that are, they're helping to like, I've veterinarians and animal care technicians and all these people that are doing the, you know, the work of, of handling the animals day in and day out. And so, you know, inevitably, depending on what your skill set is, if you're more of a business person, there might be an opportunity to join the board um, of a local uh, animal welfare organization, help them raise money. Um, so there's, you know, there's a whole slew of different things that you uh, that you can do around that. Um, so, you know, I'm a business person. I was trained in business. And so, you know, I as I said, my role when I became president of Humane Society Silicon Valley was really looking at the people and the money that was necessary to care and save the animals. And so, you know, smaller uh, rescue groups are going to be more about the hands-on care of the animal and you want to get exposure and understand that. But one of the things that I think is very important, um, Humane Society of Silicon Valley became the first shelter in the world to meet the standards put forth by the Association of Shelter Veterinarians. And the reason why that matters is that you know, unfortunately, smaller rescue groups don't understand how important proper um, uh, protocols are in caring for animals so that you don't spread disease. And canine influenza was actually introduced in Northern California because there was a rescue group that brought in dogs from Korea and didn't from Korea and did not quarantine them. And that is what introduced canine influenza into Northern California. And so Humane Society of Silicon Valley essentially, this is ironic, stepped in to do the things that we should have done in the US for COVID, which is you immediately, you lock down, you put in certain protocols in place, you start contact tracing, you do all these things so that it doesn't spread and that you can contain it and it doesn't take root. So shelter medicine is just super, super important for that reason. It is the, is the equivalent of being prepared for pandemics on the human side, you need to be doing that for on the animal side so that you don't have a shelter. You know, if you're housing a lot of animals, you have to manage something called herd. It's the herd immunity, herd population health. You can't, one animal getting sick can cause a hundred to get sick. So you have to understand that you've got to have um, biosecurity measures in place and stuff like that. So if you're actually really interested in a career in, in animals, um, it's, you know, if you're if you're scientifically minded, it's quite extensive and very, very important. And I'm excited to see that, you know, by by putting those standards in place, we've shown the animal welfare community not only can it be done, it, it needs to be done and it has drastically increased our life saving capability as well. That's huge. I'm super excited. There's gonna be a dog in the White House and this will be the first rescue dog. His name is Major. He came from He's the Delaware, yeah, the Delaware Humane Association. I'm a big fan of shepherds. I've had my past two dogs have been shepherds, and they're just amazing dogs. And they are so yeah. So that's really excited, and I'm hoping that that's going to be a boon for for shelter animals everywhere. And actually, I just heard that there's going to be a cat in the White House too. So I love that it's going to be a multi-species oh, White House. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that is great. Well, Carol, you are absolutely delightful. The work you do is life changing. The book again, is a must read. Just have your tissues ready. Mutual Rescue, How Adopting a Homeless Animal Can Save You Too. So tell us how we get the book, how we watch the film, the short films, how we can, you know, donate money, be supportive, whatever, whatever we can do. 
Yeah, so the book is available wherever books are sold. Uh, so, you know, your favorite online retailers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, independent books, all that. So um, pretty easy to find. And you can watch the short films at mutualrescue.org. And you can also learn more about the programs. Um, we had a great program called Doggy Day Out where we would, um, you could find a directory on our site to, to show shelters and rescues you could go to to take a dog out for the afternoon. That's kind of not happening so much anymore with uh, sheltering in place, but that will ramp up again when we get on the other side of this. And as I said, we're also gonna be working on a, uh, a new program to help uh, pet pantries across the country. So that'll be coming. But in the meantime, you know, we're all about making sure that we are um, supporting efforts at the local level. So if you go to mutualrescue.org, enter your zip code, it'll show you uh, shelters and rescue groups that are near you so that you can, you know, volunteer, donate, adopt uh, by an organization that's in your community and helping to make your community a better place for animals and people. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you and we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time. All of us know how important it is to put good things in our bodies to help us stay strong. That desire was the inspiration for the Bigelow Benefits line, everyday teas that fuel your body with good for you ingredients like lavender, lemon, chamomile, echinacea, and turmeric. Make better sleep focus, and stress relief part of your routines. Support your well-being with Bigelow Benefits today. Available at your local grocer on Amazon or at BigelowTea.com. Bigelow Tea, grab a mug and tea proudly.